I'm going to tell you something, Flacca, and I want you to listen tight. It may sound like I'm talking about me, but I'm not. I'm talking about you. As a matter of fact, I'm talking about all people everywhere. When I come down here to Texas, I was looking for something. I didn't know what. But it seems like you had up my life, and I'd spend it all either stomping other men or, in some cases, getting stomped. Had me some money and had me some medals. But none of it seemed a lifetime worth the pain of the mother that bore me. It was like I was empty. Well, I'm not empty anymore. That's what's important. To feel useful in this old world. To hit a lick against what's wrong or to say a word for what's right, even though you get walloped for saying that word. Now, I may sound like a Bible beater yelling up a revival at a river crossing camp meeting, but that don't change the truth none. There's right and there's wrong. You gotta do one or the other. You do the one and you're living. You do the other and you may be walking around, but you're dead as a beaver hat. Today I have Jim Miller. He is a team leader and USA Cycling Vice President of Athletics. I have no idea what that means. Uh, hopefully you don't too, because if you understand what that means, you're probably a little on the suit side and we might not have a lot in common. I, I don't know why I said that. We don't need anything in common, man. That's a the only thing we need to share is your love and appreciation for this podcast. That's it. I need you... The only thing I need from you is this real basic um, emotion of complete love and acceptance. I need you to look over all my faults and um, worry about me and let me know that you're worried and celebrate any kind of success I have. Um, without talking about yourself, unless when you talk about yourself, you're saying how the yourself is infatuated and in love with the me. Um, that's really all I need from you, is I just need you to accept me, to praise me. I'm not going to say blindly, but... I don't think you should drive. Like, I think you can see colors. And, um, if, if you, given enough time, you can read a menu from super up close. But I, I don't know if you're allowed to drive. So that kind of love. 
is what I need from you. Um, yeah, so Jim Miller, he uh, is an old friend. We go way back. I think I first raced against Jim when I was 17. Back in 19... <laughs> oh, I hate that gag. I'm so mad at myself for doing that gag. Uh, 1998 is uh, when I first raced against Jim. And he was on a team, a local Colorado team. And I was on a local Colorado team. One team based out of Boulder. One team based out of Colorado Springs. And we would fight it out in the middle. Um... My team was Danny Pate and myself, and guys like Paul Collins, uh, Reese Houghton, you know. Um, and then they had like much more of the older guard, like Eddie Gregg as Chad Gerlock, um, Dirk Friel, and some other guys. And they were really, uh, they were really good. They, they won more often than not. And um, we. We had some epic battles, and Jim went away for a little while. Didn't hear much from him, and then all of a sudden he's working at USA Cycling, and he's changing things. He's going to the Olympics, and he's really a hub for a lot of activity, and it's pretty interesting to see. Um, makes me feel good about my little transition, so I feel like I could take three or four years off, kick my feet up, a la Jim Miller, and then pretty soon be running USA Cycling. That's the plan. Um, where to go from that? Real quick before we get to the Jim Miller thing, as you, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know, um, no longer racing competitively for a paycheck, and, uh, I like it, you know, like, it's a nice press relief, I don't have to think about my back constantly anymore, and wonder if it's going to hold up and what was becoming more often than not the past two or three years being disappointed in my back and not knowing where to go and how to fix it and uh there was this moment where I was I was just throwing stuff away last week just epic amounts of trash just going through and basically annihilating anything that I saw, it was just anything that I didn't really need, I mean, it was in the trash, and, uh, I found an old bin of something that I've obviously been hoarding, and it was a bit of cycling kit from every professional team I've been on for maybe the last ten years, so maybe a jersey here, um, skin suit, whatever, you know, just a bit of kit from every team, like I said. And, uh, I got to the discovery kit, and I, uh, they, do you guys remember the Nike Swift shorts? I don't know if you remember this, but they were really new at the time. It was, you know, I think Castelli does a bit of it now, but Nike was really the first to do it. It was like aerodynamic, lightweight cycling clothing for road races, at least. I mean, they had, they had a time trial skin suit, but they, they started going in the road race market. And, uh, I mean, this was a team, like, when I went, and I, I how do I say this? Like, I saw these, this, this cycling shorts, these, these, these Swift, that's what they call this, Nike Swift shorts. And I immediately remembered how excited I was to get these shorts. 
Um, nobody else had them. They were aerodynamic and they were purposeful. They were unique. They uh, were they were the future. And in that moment, like I remembered how hopeful I was just by looking at these shorts. These shorts were size like uh, small. I don't wear size small anymore. I uh, was on a pro tour team. <coughs> Excuse me. Nothing to break a moment like a sneeze. Uh, they were small. They were aerodynamic. They were lightweight. They were ahead of its time. And they reeked of promise. These shorts were everything I was. And I was looking at these shorts and realizing I wasn't these shorts anymore. And I'm going to admit, I had a little breakdown over that. <laughs> but, uh... I don't know where I'm going with this. I think the only place I can go with this is just realizing that a lot of things I've had in my life, I've put way too much in, like, emotional stock into them. Uh, at least at the time. And then now I, I look at it and I, I, I'm embarrassed about who I was back then and, and who I am right now. Which is a great thing? Question mark. Um. So I, I mean, I, I guess you could probably see the same with people in their cars. You know, like people, people have these. They, they buy a really expensive car. They think they are this car, and obviously they're not. I've kind of lost my way on this point a little bit. I guess the point is, is I am a little sad about my cycling career, but. I'm not, um, I'm not embarrassed. I was on a team with a lot of really good guys. Um, I was on a lot of teams with a lot of good guys. Uh, I am the Kevin Bacon of cycling. I mean, the six degrees of separation within my teams is pretty ridiculous. I had a good career. I didn't have a successful career, but I had a good one. And um, I think that all kind of hit home with seeing Jim Miller, a guy I grew up racing against. How was that? Did I tie it all together? I hope so. <laughs> Here's Jim Miller. Um, no, Tinkoff was, I met him in 05 or 06 when he was kicking around the velodrome. Yeah. And he, uh, he hadn't started his team yet, but he told told me he was going to start his team, and uh, he was just as crazy then. And the next year, you see, like, uh, no, maybe he did start his team that year. That was a year maybe he picked up Hamilton. Yeah, Tinkoff, he had York. Yeah, York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was the year. It was that same time he's around. Uh, he was around Luke a lot. Yeah, he lives in Pisa. Yeah. Yeah, and so I'm sure he was kicking around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every bit eccentric and obnoxious as you can imagine. Yeah, but the good thing about him, like I said, is he's the money dude. Yeah. So, like, who can shut up the Nobody. money dude? Nobody. And the best was, like, because I was doing the math on some of his tweets, and they were, like, at 3.30 a.m., so I was like, that fucker's in bed, on Ambien, and, like, a half a glass, you know, a couple yeah. glasses of wine, 
couple bottles and just hot loaded. Thinks thinks he's making the most sense, and then he's gonna. But then he woke up in the morning. He's like, "Oh, was that me last night?" Anyway, back to craziness. Yeah. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So, dude, check this place out. I've never. So, when did you guys? Ex... So, for those who don't know, it was a part of a strip mall. You guys, the USA Cycling is located in part of a strip mall. There was a bar next to it. So they just ended their lease, and you guys said, let's get some room? Or? Yeah, a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, we were on the campus at the Olympic Training Center. Yeah. And they were tearing down three or four buildings because they were, they were reviling yeah. those facilities. Um, they were old. I think three of the four buildings had asbestos in them. So there were, there were some issues. The original, this is the original NORAD. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And... So they're moving all the NGVs, relocating them into various city buildings around town. Mm. And at that time, Steve Johnson started kicking the idea around of, we should just have our own building. Mm. It's like, it'd be much easier to control our own destiny. US Farther team. up north, so I don't have to travel as much. <laughs> US ski team style. And, uh, and so they put out RFPs for anybody in the country that wanted to... What's an RFP? Uh, Request for proposal. Request for proposal. Okay. So we actually were probably only weeks away from moving to Ogden, Utah. Ogden came back with an awesome proposal. It was was a building. They were going to build a brand new building. Lower level, be retail space. Uh, It's in the center of Ogden. You're 15 minutes away from the ski area. Sure, sure. And, and, uh... And then Carver Springs helped out, or...? And then, and then... Like, what kind of... Benefits of the cities like throw at you to. Uh, the city didn't do a ton, and I wasn't actually really super on that yeah. um, in that process. But um, trying to think of the family name. Uh, it's gonna be bad. The Smiths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, they have this building. It was vacant. Both these two buildings were relatively vacant. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a developer here in town. He called Steve and asked him if he had time for lunch, and Steve met him. He's like, hey, listen, I have this building. It's vacant, more or less vacant. I have some, some of my kids have a, a bike shop in it, but... Yeah. Uh, it was right as the economy was shit in the bed. Yeah. yeah. You know, take a look at it, and if it's something that you think you could make work out, then we'd make a donation to USA Cycling and give you the building. Wow. And, uh, and then we'll see what we can do about getting the city and the USOC to contribute to have you stay here and help remodel the building. Mm. So when it all came together, then we basically uh, got the building, gutted it from wall to wall, yeah. and reconfigured it. And, and it's a lot nicer place. It's a great building, yeah, super building. It looks so old USA Second wasn't that big. No, it was, it was... You guys were even split. You had like the licensing in one building, and then... Yeah, we were split into uh, two different buildings, and you know, one building on three different floors. Yeah. And nothing was joined. We, I would go to staff meetings, and introduce myself to people and I'm like we'd start working here and they're like oh, a year and a half ago <laughs> and I'm like wow okay I never even knew of the license inside the building until I was living at the training center and part of living at the training center is they make you do so many volunteer hours yeah and I did I nobody had even told that to me so like it wasn't until I think somebody knocked on my room and was like dude you have like 200 volunteer hours to fulfill in like a week so I had to go to the membership side and just lick stamps stuffed and mail envelopes. Stuffed envelopes for a while. Stuffed envelopes. That came a long way, too. 
Yeah, do you, do, is there anybody living at the Olympic Training Center? Does USA Cycling have that program anymore? Uh, no, we don't really, we don't have a on-site resident program here anymore. Yeah, why not? Uh, we do have some off-sites. Um, primarily because we, we relocated everything on the track to Carson. BMX is in uh, Chula. We, we yeah. Do what's some an off, in what's an offsite resident? Offsite means they have access to the facilities, but they don't live on campus. Okay. Then they so, find their own housing. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. they come in, and they can live. They can work out. They can see sports med. They can right. Because the there's center. no point in. I guess this attracts better in LA, so they don't really come to Colorado Springs that much. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's international standard indoor two fifty wood, right. controllable. Sea level power. Sea level power. Yeah. All the above. So, dude, when did you start working with music cycling? Because, like, for those who don't know, there's probably that don't know, like, you were the racer, man. Yeah. Like, when we were, when I was coming up, like, 16, 17, it was, it was you and, uh, who else? Who else? Like, Gregus. Gregus. Uh, Chris Fisher. Chris Ball. Fisher. Oh, man, what's Fisher doing up Chris Fisher, uh, I totally forgot about. What's he he's doing? His old name. He's moved back to Michigan. Yeah. Is has a coaching business. Yeah. And is racing bikes again. Is he? Yeah. Because he had like he had like one or two years on Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. And then that was about like. So you came up. Did were you racing as a junior or anything? Or? No, I started. I started around nineteen, and I started racing mountain bikes probably around eighty nine. Yeah. Uh, it, Early nineties, you could make decent money racing mountain bikes, even if you yeah. were average. Yeah, it was on NBC. Yeah, and it, that was the extreme sport. Yeah, they you got stupid, stupid sponsorships. You would get wheel deals, and they would give you all the wheels you could race. Yeah, plus ten thousand dollars cash, and you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it, it that was a crazy time, but that that went south really quick. It was like after the ninety six Olympics. Yeah. And then to make any money, you gotta you gotta get road contracts. But the '90s were harder; they were different for road contracts then because you didn't have that many pro teams in America. No, um, you essentially had to win a national championship to get a contract because there were very few contracts handed out every year. It really wasn't and, an NRC type. Uh, there, there was, but it wasn't like it is now. It's not. There wasn't all this opportunity. Yeah, there weren't U twenty three teams. There weren't. No, no, yeah. there weren't. Uh, second and third level pro teams it was it was like the big guys yeah and those guys would race on those teams for 15 20 years yeah and then every year somebody would retire and there'd be space for one or two guys yeah 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 so it was, it was really hard to make a bit of money then and going to Europe wasn't easy either you know there, there wasn't internet there wasn't yeah uh, oh no it was like getting shot to another planet yeah you got a ticket in and you got a ticket out and you had to make this big commitment for 10 months and I mean, I went to, I think I went to Italy in 99. Yeah. All based on fact, or a fax. Like, yeah, come over. A phone call in yeah. December saying, do you want to come to Italy? Yeah. When? 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, I was definitely, I definitely got the transition. Like, yeah. it got better, significantly better every year. Yeah. But, like, yeah, the first year it was like, I remember calling home from a pay phone just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, this is bad news. So it was different. I mean, it was, it was much more challenging. Yeah. So then, how did you progress? Because I think I first I caught, I think I heard your name it was probably when you were on the Oil Me team. Yeah, Oil Me. Uh, then Merlin Hind 
That was World Cup right. Cyclist Days. But that was kind of like Merlin Hine was kind of like you just continuation, started, yeah, just yeah. a name change. But it kind of felt like you. That was kind of when you started getting out of it a little bit more. You were yeah, yeah, because you know, they had like juniors on the team, and you would help out with them. And yeah. Well, what happened is uh, 97, 98, I had a had a we, my wife and I had a daughter. Yeah. Which you know it's not that old. I was twenty eight, and you're more than yeah. old enough to have a child, but. Living the twelve thousand dollar dream sure. with a child is a different story altogether. Right. Yeah. And at that point, you have to start figuring out life quickly. Mm-hmm. And and I've got a degree in exercise physiology and had been coaching riders from I don't know ninety four on, and maybe around ninety nine the Merlin days. Yeah. Uh, I decided I was a better coach than I was an athlete, and I started coaching full time. And then after. 99 Merlin Hine team that actually that sponsorship transitioned into a junior team and I just took that team over and became the director there was that hard for you to kind of let go of cycling a bit or were you just kind of ready of the rat race no as you know it's really hard yeah it's, it's super hard to stop it's nobody wants to stop because it's a nice lifestyle it's fun uh, it is it's a bit very, very social it's a very uh, you get to live your life as ignorantly as you wish yeah it is good it's hard to quit and and you miss the teams and you miss be part miss being part of the guys and yeah and if you're competitive it's you you have to find a new outlet for that competitiveness when you watch a race you always you always put yourself in the race on your best day yeah you yeah. never imagine like oh well, no not to like like with me with this back injury like it's just getting worse and worse and worse and like now I'm pretty much useless and like whenever I watch a race it's always like 2003 2002 yeah. like oh, I was just there like full gas yeah 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 just re- like I, this is so easy it's just move up yeah you know yeah so then so um, yeah so I did that for a couple of years uh, ran this junior team and 2001, Jeff Pierce was the athletic director. Right. And only for a brief period of time, like six months. Yeah. And USA Cycling was reorganizing then and restructuring, and they they had launched the U23 program, and then the next phase was the women's endurance program. And Jeff hired me to run the women's national team, which then became T-Mobile. And that was an intense push. I, like, I don't think of that time how much of how much of the year were you on the road oh it was nuts um each of those years i spent anywhere from 20 to 25 weeks a year in europe in europe in europe in yeah europe. not counting races in the states yep. training camps yep etc wow so that that was a those were three really intense years but you know when we when i first came the the very first thing Jeff told me is this this absolutely can't fail and you absolutely have to get a medal in Athens yeah it's like period yeah and, and did you did you spot uh, Christian Armstrong immediately as as the person or did it take a little while no uh, I hired Kristen really fast um, I think I saw Kristen race three days and offered her a contract wow uh, but she was really good she did uh Pomona Hill Climb, San Dimas. Yeah. And I think was second or third. And we had Amber, we had uh, Kimberly Bruckner, we had some really good girls there, Mari Holden. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, who's this girl? 
And they're like, some triathlete. I was like, okay. The next race, we raced Housatonic. Remember Housatonic in Connecticut? Wow, that's a and blast. We had a pretty good rivalry with Saturn women then. Yeah. Saturn was the number one women's team in the world. We were the new upstart yeah. American team. And I just wanted to beat Saturn. Yeah. And in every race we went to, I didn't care. I just wanted to beat them. But if you beat them, you did something. Yeah. And, and you had to really think as Petra Rosner and Ina Teutenberg were, were geniuses tactically. Yeah. And you, you, have to, you have to think about how to beat them. Yeah. So Housatonic, we did uh, a crazy tactic. And we ended up getting uh, Amber Neven off with Anna Milward, who was the world number one rider at the time. But Housatonic's really hilly. And maybe, you know, our thought was maybe we can, we can punch it up every climb and, and eventually and a cracks towards the end and, sure. and Amber can ride away and Saturn seemed content with with letting it ride away so we did yeah. except it only went like to a minute and stayed and after 30 or 40k I radioed back to the girls and I was like who the hell is chasing yeah I'm like this is ridiculous and I expected them to say Saturn yeah and they're like that one Armstrong girl wow I'm like just one and they're like just one by herself and I'm like that's ridiculous so after the race, I went and introduced myself and said, hey, we have a spot for you if you would like. And she's like, what, for, it was for uh, the race in Idaho or Orida, uh, what they call it later. Anyways, that's your relative, but she said she, does, she was already on a team and, and but she appreciated it. And That's your and, first uh, contact with her. Yeah, and then. You know what's funny is how like, even now, like you still remember the details of the race. Like I think, when you just grow up racing, like there are yeah. some races from when I was a junior, from when I was under 23 to a pro, like where you just, you remember the blow by blow. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how much of it is like us blowing it up in our own mind, but there are just these, like you ever been in a race and then you're like, I feel like I've been here before. Yeah, all the time. And then you're like, oh no, yeah, this is 99, we did a yeah. circuit. Even to, even to this day, if I'm in Europe driving somewhere, I'll be like, oh, look around and be like, oh hey, we had a stage finish here once yeah and then I can remember the whole race leading up to the stage finish yeah yeah, yeah. I think that just comes with being such a competitor and like I feel like when you spend so much time like probably you have a training physiology background so that's obviously you probably pick that apart and then I feel like when you're uber competitive like that and then you take it into a field like running a women's team mm -hmm. like it shows when you just you you wanted to beat Saturn so bad that you noticed Kristen before anybody else really yeah. kind of obsessed about it. Yeah. But you're obsessed about winning and just beating everybody. And I think courses and races and tactics, you remember that crap because it's like a, it's like a catalog in your brain and of experiences. Yeah. And to be a great bike racer or to be a great director. Yeah. It's a collection of experiences and, and you're filing these the right way and, yeah. and they come back in these weird flashes and you're like, Oh wow. Do you remember the race that you and I did together? I think I was still a junior, I'm not sure. We were in some criterion somewhere. And uh, it started raining really, really bad. And it was just down to you and me. And you were just sitting on my wheel, and I knew you were gonna beat me in a sprint, but like, I had to try to get you off my wheel. This downpour starts, and because the wind was so strong, fences started blowing down, and a horse got on the course. I remember that. Do you remember? And I started riding my bike, head down, right General at the horse, horse. hoping you would, you, you would hit your brakes. 
and you, I just heard you, I heard you, Mike, horse, horse, Mike, horse. And I figured, like, it has to be one of the only times, like, I'm sure it's happened, but, like, but maybe one of the only, like, 10 or 15 times somebody's had to, like, warn, like, somebody horse. And maybe it's the only time somebody used a horse as an opportunity to get the guy off his foot. Those were fun. We had a fun time in Colorado. There were some good bike racers then. Uh, not to say they're not now, but they're, we had some really good But guys. it was like the Colorado Cyclist crew and the Oil Me crew. And you guys, 90% of the time, came out on top. But we were older. You guys were young. You were it was, kids. Yeah. It was, and we'd be, we'd marvel at how strong you and Danny were. It was, it was insane. Yeah, it was like me, Danny, Clark Sheehan, and then the other guys, not so much. But yeah. it was... It was always a lot of fun. Because, I, I mean, I've, I think when you're that young, you can hype up situations so much. You just have so much energy. And we would be driving to the BFE race, you know, and just be like, oh, we just have to. It's fucking Jim Miller and Dirk <laughs> Friel. I just got to beat Dirt. these guys. That was fun. I remember the Nywalk crit with Pate. That's one of my I was about to stories. ask you about this. This that. is the greatest... All right, I'm going to let you, I'll tell you Danny's side of the story. The story that we tell now was that, because we knew Danny had a bit of a kick on him. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think you guys were quite aware of how much of a kick he had on him. Because he's, especially back then, he was a really lanky, gangly kid. And he said, uh, so the Nywalk Nywalk Crit is your guys' sponsor race. Right. It was where the Oil Me Bike Shop was. Yeah. So, and you guys win 90% of the time. And um, so all race, we're just covering each other, a little bit of a pissing match. You and Danny get off the front together, and Oil Me just stops racing. And we were, we stopped racing. We're like, oh, well, okay. So Danny says that he, um, he purposely drank out of his water bottle. He took the front and made it seem like he was drinking out of his water bottle for like a kilometer, he said. He said he did it until you attacked him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, uh, you, you open up the sprint and you put your arms up and he comes underneath and he screamed, Jim Miller. <laughs> I don't know if you remember it quite the same way. It's cl- Yeah, it's close. I remember, well, I remember the weekend before that race, Danny was in a break with, with Randy Wicker. Oh, man. And yes. Danny took a drink of his bottle, and Wicker jumped him and won the race. So it was fresh in Pate's mind. It was fresh in Pate's mind, but it was also fresh in my mind, because I'm like, oh, that was a great move. <laughs> what and, team was Wicker riding for, then? Because he was on Card of Cyclist. Yeah. Uh... He was for somebody else that year. Okay. Maybe Gino's Pizza or something stupid. Okay. Uh, Denver Spoke. Okay. We could do two hours on Randy Wicker. Yeah. You could, easy. Yeah. For those who don't know, Randy Wicker is this Colorado legend who, as a 16-year-old, had dropped out of high school, tattooed hate and kill on his knuckles, randomly around 17 or 18 decided to start racing bikes, went to Redlands, beat all the Russians... And as quickly disappeared off the map. Yeah. But he is, like, as a mark of respect, Danny and I always, we would mess with anybody when we were that age. You knew that we would say anything. Anything to anybody. Anything to anybody except Wicker. Wicker. We were on our best behavior around Landry Wicker. (laughs) 
Well, Wicker would thump everybody down. In, a, in an instant. Yeah. So, so it was fresh in your mind, and you thought, oh, that old Pate, he likes yeah. to drink a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we come around, and it's, we're coming up on Bell Lap. And the Snywalk crit was technical, yeah. a lot of turns, yeah. not long straightaways, so you didn't have to open it up and, and roll it. You could really, if you were technically it good. You could sprint coast, sprint coast. Yeah, yeah. You, you, could, you could roll it. So we're coming up on Bell Lap. Danny reaches down and grabs his bottle, and I had, I still remember it too, and I, I probably was sitting back at bike length because I'd quit pulling a lap, maybe a lap and a half before that, and was like, okay, now you have to, Mm-hmm. Now you're gonna lead this out. Yeah, and and uh, and we also had on that team we had Alan McCormick. Remember Alan? Yeah, McCormick? it's KG old and, and the finish was like a hundred meters after the turn. The turn. Yeah. So it was like you just had to be first in the turn. And it was pretty much game all over. Yeah. So we're coming into that turn. We're gonna get the bell, and Danny reaches down and grabs his bottle, and immediately I just took a run at the wheel and went for it. And just drove it through the technical section. It was taking huge risks and huge chances. And I actually thought I had the gap. I was like, I'm gonna get this gap. Mm. And committed to it. And on the back stretch, there was one long road that was about three blocks. And the length of that road, Danny closed the gap onto me. Oh. So I'm like, you know, we're maybe two turns away. Sure. And I'm like, crap, I'm gonna get stuck leading this out. I'm like, so I remember thinking to myself, I'm just gonna go really slow and then jump to that corner, and 100 meters right, away yeah. from the corner. As long as I beat him in the corner, it's fine. And as we came out of uh, the last, second to last corner, Danny launched, and I'm like, so then he has the he has the lead, but he's gonna be first in the corner. So I chase him down the stretch, going to this corner, but the corner's really narrow, and it had a really, really tight exit too on the fence, and there was only one line in there. And I set up as far to the outside of him overlapped as I could mm-hmm. and when he dove down I dove down but I dove down harder tried to cut and came underneath him yeah and tried to push him up into the fence Valentino Rossi style. yeah yeah and uh and I, I know I, I got him to tap his brakes but then it was dead even all the way to the line and and he was faster so you didn't post early I didn't post no I don't think I ever God, see this is how much the myth has gotten blown out is that now <laughs> The story we now tell is that you posted early. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't post there because I didn't. When we were on the line, we didn't know who won. Really? No. And and for me, then you know, the prize money was everything. We had we. Yeah. Had, I mean, you were making six ten thousand dollars cash. Yeah. Salary, maybe yeah. a thousand bucks a month if you're lucky. Yeah. But you could make double that in prize money. No, there were big money crits was, then. Yeah, and that was big money crit and. All I knew Sponsor is crit. when we left that, we had to leave with a chunk of change in our pockets just to pay mortgages. and Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we raced all the way to the line there. But he was the young kid. He was, yeah, yeah. He was 16, 17 maybe, and here we are, a bunch of old veterans. I've got Alan McCormick, and, and our rule before that day was if you get in a break and you can't win out of that break, you don't want to come back. Yep. I was like, fine, okay, I understand that. Yeah. So you get in the break, and I'm sure in the back group it was the same as like, is is he going to come back, or is he thinking you can beat him? And I thought I could beat him, so I'm like rolling and going for it. And right, right. So then when they, yeah, when anyways when they post the results, there were, there was no uh, smiles and high fives in my. Oh, uh, take 
assurance in that we took that first place prize money, and as 17-year-olds do, we went to Taco Bell. Yeah. And we <laughs> bought ate everything you could. We really killed Taco Bell. <laughs> do you remember the... Um, the Mead Road race, when they had it, just I, mean, I think they only had it one or two years. Yeah. Is that four corner race? Yep. And somehow something happened where it was four cardiocyclist guys and Eddie Gregus. And we were all shitting our pants because there was like 2K to go because Gregus is faster than all yeah. of us. Yeah. And we're like, God, these guys are still going to win. Like, they're so frustrating that we get four to one and they're still going to win. Yeah. We were like, I was like frustrated, so frustrated in that moment. And um, for some reason, Gregus looked behind him to see where you guys were, and he touched the wheel in front of him, and he fell down. He just, just ate <laughs> shit. And the four of us were just looking at each other like, we should go, right? Like, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> and then after the race, there's like Gregus and Gerlach and all these guys just like, what the fuck? You didn't wait for him? That's not nice. <laughs> Oh man, we took our money and ran out of there. Those were fun days. They they were really fun days. They were um, like I remember racing Redlands with you guys, or not Redlands, um, Gila. Gila. Gila, just all costs. Yeah, it was. I think when you're that young coming up, you need like this rivalry. Yeah. Like it just an older, yeah. like established established dude who's just like. Who doesn't give you any fucking respect and just bust your balls? And yeah. you you just need it because you're just like I'm gonna kill that guy. Yeah, and you just yeah. you just lay at night plotting. Uh, so yeah, you, they were fun. That was fun. So you finish. You do. You go all all the way from Merlin to T-Mobile Women's, and then what's your position now within USA? Uh, my position now is the title's vice president athletic, vice president of athletics, which is. A high performance director. I oversee all the Olympic teams, world teams, national teams. So coaches report to you. Yep. Yep. Selection criteria, budgets, etc. So a coach will say, like, I think we should do this race. How's riders this? Pick these riders, and you sign off on it. Yep. Exactly. That's so a coach to the coach. Coach to the coaches. Is that? Is that like uh, hard for you to not have direct control? I mean, you have oversight, but you don't. You don't want to micromanage either. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not a micromanager. That's not my style. I I try to hire good people, smart people, and mm -hmm. let them do their job. Yeah. Steer them in the right directions. Give them the right. Uh, what area has been proven to be the hardest to keep? I don't. I don't want to say running smoothly, but what's the one that is most time consuming? Um, they're all really time consuming in their own right. Road program is a, is a big, big program. Yeah. Um, I mean, you go through that entire program top to bottom, and it's a lot of staff, it's a lot of overhead, it's a lot of budget, mm. uh, it's a lot of riders. Um, BMX is, for me, that was the piece that I had to pick up. I didn't know that much about it, it was new to me. But, uh, so, you know, there's a lot to learn there, even for me. Yeah. Um, and it's new people, new faces, so you still have, you have to develop those relationships and that rapport with a whole other group, subset of cyclists that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you have to whole new out. culture. Yeah. Um, How is it? Do you, did you enjoy it? Do you enjoy just like kind of getting out of your comfort zone? But it's still the same sport, but completely different. It's still cycling, but it's totally different. 
seems like it'd be a lot more laid back, a lot more fun. Yeah, it's it's still a uh, well, it's it's changing because it's in the Olympics, but it, it the the core of it is still a out of back of a pickup truck with mom and dad and yeah, much more a family sport. Yeah, eating hot dogs and yeah, racing heats and getting sunburns and going home on Sunday night. How's cyclocross for you guys, even though it's not an Olympic sport? Um, you know, cyclocross is huge in this country. People love cyclocross. Cyclocross, cyclocrossers are yeah. super passionate about it. Yeah, uh, it's actually you know internally, everybody here are cyclocross fans. Sure. Uh, and you know we and we do what we can to help out with Eurocross and Jeff Proctor and and getting and we also help out getting. U23s and juniors to Europe in the fall time to do some cyclocross racing. So do you guys have like a USA Cycling program or do you just support? It's, no, it's not a full-fledged program. It's more of a support. Mm. Um, What's support entail? Support is, it can be plane tickets, it can be housing, it can be races, it can be race support. Sure. It can be, uh, it can be everything from just a travel stipend to marking his swan ear mechanic going over and, and doing races with the team. You guys have a really big women's program too. I think probably, I mean, speaking completely ignorantly, but it seems like you put more support behind the women's federation, women's cycling than any other federation. Yeah, I think we for sure we're, we've led the way in that a long time, and I think it goes all the way back to T-Mobile. Yeah. Um, but I also think that we've had a, a women's program that would rival anybody in the world for the last 10 years. Is it because you have like the ability to win with the women's team? Like, whereas it's not because the I don't mean it in a degrading manner, but because the bar of entry in women's cycling is so much lower because it's not built up where mm -hmm. it has these pro tour, pro continental, right. continental that you can just pull riders from pro teams, go to bigger races. Everybody's working together. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the above. Um, you know the women's. In America, you have so much talent. Yeah. It's ridiculous the amount of talent. And if you can find an athlete, a second sport athlete, that comes from college soccer, college tennis, uh, cross country running, track and field, you name it, swimming. Mm -hmm. um, they find a bike, and they generally find a bike because they have a boyfriend or a husband or somebody gets them on a bike, mm -hmm. and they're they have a little bit of talent. You can bring them to a really high world class level, and and relatively short amount of time yeah so it's, it's a little bit easier to to show short-term gains internationally comparative to the men if, yeah. if you go back to the men and you go back to under 23 program that started with you pay uh, Zabriskie that group yeah I mean that was a long time for for some I mean it's to bear fruit I mean from what that USA Cycling House in Nizagam used to be, like when we first got there, like to what it is mm -hmm. now. Now you guys are in Holland, and I've seen pictures of the place in Holland. It looks yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's night and day. Why Holland? Um, the primary reason was because we still believe that for the men that the you need to be central to Belgium, Holland, France, Luxembourg, more races. Yeah, that area. You get you have a ton of racing. You have a ton of racing opportunities. Um, you've been to Belgium, you've been to Holland. Holland, for Americans, is just a little bit more Western. It's a little bit easier to be in. Yeah. You know, it's like, if, if I try to explain to somebody, it's 
once you cross the border into Holland, it's like Technicolor. All of a sudden, buildings are painted. Yeah. It, the sun comes out. Yeah. It, it's Belgians just, don't spend a lot of money on house paint. No. And it's just going to get like the winter's just going to rip it off. Yeah. And it's just it's a little bit easier to be there. And every and in Holland, every person under forty-five speaks English. Yeah. You know, in Belgium, Isgum, they spoke Dutch, they spoke Flemish, they spoke French. Do the under twenty-three still go to Luca at all? Nope. Uh, we we also moved out of Luca and uh, that must have been a heartbreaker for some of the under twenty threes. You get your maybe like a first year under twenty three, he gets to go to Luca for a month and then Luca's No no awesome. no, we're back to Holland. Yeah. You know the problem with Luca was it actually was just it was too nice. And yeah. you could get there and you you would forget that you were there to race bikes and yeah. all of a sudden you get the romantic European experience in your mind and you're touring and you're riding five, six hours and yeah, having yeah. coffee and eating pasta and yeah, it's, you, you can go down to town and have a great dinner. Yeah, and then you go back, back to the racing and it's hard. So and you actually saw some of the riders maybe kick back a little too much. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's interesting. It's, it's just too comfortable. And you know, it's funny because when I was in Isigam, Noel Dionca would always say that like, if you can't make it here, you can't make it anywhere because we feed you, we house you, we drive you to races, we take you to the airport. And I remember, thinking, and just because of my personality, like at the time, like I had a very hard time fitting in mm -hmm. because you know, like it was, I just didn't know how to listen, and so it was, it was always this thing. But then when I got on Postal and you go to Girona, it was like I remember calling Tyler Farrar because he was having a hard time, and I told him like, you know how Noel says this. That's complete bullshit. <laughs> if you can make it in Isigam, you can you make, it, make anywhere. it anywhere, yeah. dude. And maybe that's a little bit of that, because then you get to yeah. go to a sunny climate yeah. with wider roads, with climbs. Yeah. It just shows how much I know, because Tyler just stayed in Belgium. He just said, yeah. no, this is great. But you know, he went to Nice for a couple of years and then came back, and he's like, I like Belgium. Yeah. Yeah. He's more comfortable up there. I think it's just because he went on COVID, so they wanted him in a French. Yeah. They wanted him to learn French. And yeah. Yeah. So. But Hall is nice. It's 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 easier to be there. Uh, it's still the hard racing. It's still, you know, yeah. it's not it's not Luca nice or it's not Southern Italy nice or Southern uh, Europe nice. Yeah. So you don't forget that you're in Europe to race bikes. Yeah. But it's not pounding your head against the wall every single day. Sure. What, um... What do you got? So, what do you guys do with the track now? Because I, the guys are making a big push with the women's team pursue mm -hmm. women's. Uh, there's rumors that there's like a new women's team. Uh, trade team that's going to be started around. The track season, more or less. Um, you know. What involvement at all? If you get, do you guys have yeah, with that? Uh, quite a bit. So. While I've been a coach here, and while I've run different programs, and and been part of this and I even coached on the track for a couple of years uh, we've always tried to build these big programs and almost replicate what they were doing in the 90s and it didn't matter if it was Anjay, uh, Des Dickey, um, Australian guy, Gary West, everybody's trying to build these big programs and track is really 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 expensive at the end of the day for very little. For very little. You race four times, there's four World Cups, yeah. three World Cups and a World Championship, maybe you do a Pan Am Championship. 
uh, one rider goes with six bags. I mean, it, it's crazy it's very, expensive. It's very sprint heavy, and I feel mm. like sprint, and it's a very dumb cliche, and I roll my eyes whenever I hear it, but I feel like sprinters need very little little development. They are almost born with it. They have it. You give them, the, and it seemed like with Gary West and Anjay, they were very sprint heavy mm-hmm. with people who were talented in the States, but they didn't have. Yeah. Look at Nassan. Nassan went outside the program. Yep. I mean, I feel like, yeah, so I get that you're going more towards the women than endurance. Yeah. So, so when I came as athletic director, I just took a look at it and said, listen, we don't have a we don't have British money. We don't have Australian money. Mm. Uh, we're not going to have it. Mm. And we hadn't won a, a medal in the Olympics in Sydney. And I'm like, what can we win? Let's just let's just pick one thing and do it right and win what we can win, and be happy with it. And, yeah. And you know, if you don't have the uh, Karen Ryder, don't take six guys and try to make them a Karen Ryder. Just say, okay, we don't have a Karen Ryder. Let's put our money where we can. And so that's what we did with women's endurance. And you have a, you have a, I mean, you have Sarah Hammer. If you have Sarah Hammer, you have a chance. You have a chance. Yeah. A phenomenal athlete. Um, so our, you know, I originally had approached Andy Sparks about this. I was like, dude, let's win this. We can win this. But we need Sarah. And he's like, you need to find a team that can ride with her. So we started calling people and putting together a team and, and building it. And that's really how we work towards towards London. Now there was a lot there was a lot more to it, but that was the focus and we yeah. went to London, it was just like, listen, we only expect to have a shot at two medals. We're not looking for anything else here. Two medals being the, the omnium and the team pursuit. Yep. Yeah. And let's just put everything to that and and uh see where we go with it. Um track sprint, you know, Jamie I think Jamie Stout's an awesome coach. Yeah, he's uh, a great guy. He's a great guy. He gets it. Um he spent Eight years in the British system, he understands how it worked there, how how they were successful, uh, and you know. Is there like a talent finding mission? There's not. No. They have it, but it's tied to their national lottery. No, no. Is, I mean, for you guys. Oh yeah, um, there is. We run we run two or three uh, talent day sprint camps. They're open, open door. Come and train. Show us what you got. Um, mm. About as simple as you possibly. Would can. you know what kind of like metrics they're looking for? Is that Jamie? Yeah, uh, there's peak powers. There's there's track times. There's there's hundred times. And you're looking for almost like a not necessarily a trained guy to do it. Not like a a guy like G who's been around for a while. But you're looking for more of a guy who's got Kev, to do yeah. it for like a year a or two. Perfect guy. Kevin Masker shows up to a just an open casting call in 2010. Yeah. And now he's probably now that Jimmy Watkins is retired probably the fastest guy in this country and he was just a, it's just a walk-in he has really really good uh leg speed i mean pedal 180 200 rpms mm-hmm. uh he's growing he's he's a young guy so the power's coming up um i think in the last couple maybe over the last year's peak powers probably came up four or five hundred watts which is pretty significant yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe three let's say three to four hundred but yeah. nonetheless it's, it's a significant amount when you're up around 2,000 watts. So what kind of support does he get if he's... Well, right now what we have is we, for track sprint, instead of just pushing people through this this pathway and, and spending money, we put together uh, a set of international time standards. So we took a look at all the World Cups, all the World Championships, Olympics, qualifying times, team sprint times, man one times, man two times, man three times, 
um, put it in a spreadsheet, drew a linear progression, recognized that year after year the, the average international growth is like 1.2%. So sprint, so qualifying times per 200 get faster by 1.2% each year, yeah. which is nothing. It's like going 10.0 to 998. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But over 10 years, it's, it's became significant. So we, we basically took uh, the average qualifying time of the B sprint tournament winner and said, what is that guy? Because at least you're starting with the raw materials where a guy can win. You can develop a guy. Took that time and said, okay, now let's let's chart this against ages. So 17, 18, 19, 20, uh, 21, 25, 27, something like that, 28, 29, 30 on, and said, if you can meet one of these time standards, then we'll build a program. And then year after year, that, that progression has to meet the international progression. Sure. So at minimum, you met a time standard where you're good enough to be the B tournament winner. winner and now you're progressing along with the international time standard. And so if he does that, then does then, he get from the yeah, World Cups? Or? Yeah, then if he does that, then then you get international racing opportunities, you get GPs, you get Kieran's, you get World Cups. Do you think like the men's team pursuit is just too hard to pull off? You guys started a while back with the under-23s, but then... We had some really good teams, yeah. You know, there was one year I did a team pursuit camp, and on one team I had... Pause one Taylor second. Finney. Pause one second. Do you remember the time that I farted on you at a team pursuit camp? <laughs> no. Do you not remember this? It was when I, there was a crash. Yeah. Chris Christian crashed. And I, I had my back was already injured. I was so mad. And I can't yell at a woman. You know, you're not yeah. going to be the guy who yells at a woman. It was a mistake. She didn't fall off the track on purpose. Yeah. And the only, it was my team, it was, it was the Tia Craft guys who paid me Friedman Huff. And everybody else was women. Yeah. And the only other guy that I could take it out on was, was you. And you were the coach of the women. And they were going too slow and they fell off the track. And uh, we, we were going fast. We were doing a flying yeah, 1K. Were. We were doing yeah. a flying 1Ks at full tilt. So I yeah. probably clipped her at like 60K an hour conservatively. Yeah. yeah. And the only other guy that was there was, was, was you. So as I was walking off the track, I just farted on you. And it was funny because like I could feel all the sympathy in the room just drain out. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, Creed, are you all right? Blah, blah, blah. And then as I was passing you, I farted and you just felt every go like, whatever. Jackass. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, I remember that camp and I don't remember the circumstances around it. But I remember coming to your room like at 10 o'clock to talk to you about something and that may have been it. And you were like... No, I remember, you know, I also remember, as I remember... Because Friedman, because Friedman's furious that night. Because Friedman's the most. No, you came to Friedman's room. That's what happened. Because Friedman's, uh, he's my friend. So I'm gonna say this with quotations. I'll say this as a friend saying it about it to another friend. He isn't a reactionary idiot. So as reactionary idiots do. I realize how stupid that is that I said that after I farted on you. But he's a reactionary idiot, and he posted somewhere publicly how stupid it was that the women crashed and that, the, whatever. Yeah. Something along these lines, yeah. slagging off women. And I, I think you went to his room like... I was on a warpath. I was furious. <laughs> Were you? And I remember Gary West telling me to calm down and just think about it. Okay. And I stormed out of his room. That's funny coming from Gary West. Yeah. I stormed out of his room. I remember Pat McDonough chasing me through a parking lot and banging on the door. And, and I guess now that you say it, it was Friedman. Uh, 
But I remember, I guess I was probably reading him the right act, but I can plain as day remember your face in the background looking at me like, oh my no, God. No, man, I was in the room. I think I'm 100% positive you were. I do. This is this is funny because this is shows like how history changes stories. Yeah. But I, my recollection is that Peyton and I were rooming together, and then Friedman came over to our room and said, "Jim Miller, just because I don't think, just because of how things are, we don't tell everybody how we know everybody." Yeah. So he comes over to our room like Jim Miller, that fucker Jim Miller came over and just yelled at me for that. What I said on some forum, and and Peyton and I were like, we were laughing, like we're so happy. We're like, that's great, man. That's great. That's funny. He's like, no, you yelled at me. Like, yeah, but you probably de- you kind of deserved it. Like, Jim's a good guy. It's fine. And he's like, oh, he's like, why are you defending him? Like, we've known him since we were sixteen. Yeah. We know, we know him longer. We know you, dude. You're the you're the stranger here. That's correct. Uh, All right, so we did the team, team pursuit, pursuit. with uh, so, Taylor Finney. So we had Taylor, I had TJ, yep. Chris Barden, when Chris Barden was going really well. Yep. And Ben Keene. And they, were, they, they flew, they did a 417 and spoked wheels. Wow. And those, you know those specialized Lancasters? Lancasters? Yeah, yeah. On those bikes. Yeah. Nothing special, straight up. Yeah. No stock crap. In ADT? Um, ADT? Yep. A good that, that's a good Yeah, and then of course the road guys, and they you know they go do road racing. Uh, we but you know we tried. I really thought that we could take good U twenty threes. This is really what the Australians do too, right? I'm riding one day and I have this epiphany that you know I'm like, where are all the great pursuiters in America? Why why can't we find pursuiters in this country? And I had this epiphany that I was like, you know what? We do actually. We just put them on the road. Yep. Is where Australia takes them off the road and puts them on the track. Yeah, and and that's where they find these these four fifteen guys, one after the other, after the other, after the other, um, and have these awesome team pursuit teams. Now, took a look at the, their team pursuit teams after three, four, five years of it, and the average age was like twenty two. Was really they were really young teams. And I was like, hey, what if we took our road guys and started doing team pursuit with them? We're in Europe. You have to get track. Uh, we spent a fair amount of time in Switzerland at the UCI track, which is, is a beautiful track. And every single year we'd get guys that would, they would progress up to about, you know, a 4.13, 4.14 time. But then that rider becomes so good that he becomes really attracted to road teams. Yep. And then yep. and that power development from the track brings them a long way on the, the road. Talent. Yeah, it brings them a long way onto the road. And so well, because there's not like a culture of track racing. There's no. not. And, and so we'd lose them and we started again and we started three times doing this so we'd lose guys and we'd take another set and start again and then it just you know it just got to the point where I took a look around at what the, the men's team pursuit teams were doing going into London and you have you have Green Edge that's a that's a full blown pro team pro tour team yep. they're paying riders pro tour salaries and then they're saying hey you you and you are going to ride team pursuit this year you have Sky that's doing the same thing you have Rus Bella that was put together by the Russian Federation, and uh, uh, so you think the Federation has that kind of cash? It's just not a yeah. Viable so, so really, you're looking at teams that are just their salaries for those four or five riders is, is going to be a million dollars a year. Easy. And then you're looking at the the program cost or the the operations cost of it. 
yeah. and you're looking at another, yeah, I don't know, half million a year to do those World Cups, etc. Mm-hmm. Train all the training camps all the time away, yeah. and, and really to be competitive, you know, you're still talking about a medal. Yeah. So even if you can build a team that can go four twelve, four ten, four four eight, four six, four four, four two, which is you know a fair progression. Yeah. You're still talking about fourth or fifth place. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, if we spend all this money on this for five, six years to get to this point, you yeah. still may only get fourth place. Yeah, you could spend six million dollars over four years and yeah. get whatever. and yeah. And and so I just don't think that realistically that financially in men's team pursuit there's many nations that can compete with with those three or four countries. Right. And and Okay, so let's just recognize it and focus efforts elsewhere. With limited resources, you have to you have to be smart. So you're taking that model and putting it towards the women's side, mm-hmm. and that's is that so that's all towards Rio. That's yep. the ultimate. Yep. Uh, how many women are you looking to have? For that? Um, well, you know, women's team pursuit is going to be four K and four women now. It was three K and three women. Uh, I think that made is better for us because we have. I think at the, the depth of talent we have, um, I think it makes it more difficult for a lot of other nations to come up with a fourth. Um, and then if you have a fourth, you really need a fifth because you're only a caller going away from not starting. Sure. Uh, so to find a fourth and fifth rider that can can ride at that level, I think really eliminates a lot of nations. But it's good for us. So you know we're looking at we'll we'll start this quad with with uh, probably six to eight girls in mind, and then as we get closer to Rio, it'll, it'll come down to five to six. Sure. The, only, the one thing, because there was a push there when I was on Tia Kref, uh both years we had a strong track push. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I felt that ultimately it kind of screwed me was because I would spend all this time on the track, and I'm not a natural track racer, mm-hmm. but I was just aggressive. And you could go do all this track work, go to these track camps, you're spending time away from the road team, and then the season's over, maybe you don't have much to show for it. Uh, you know, as a points racer, I didn't have a lot of opportunities. And then you, then USA Cycling says, ah, oh, well, that really didn't work out, I guess, huh? And you're like, no, nah, I guess not. And then they're like, all right, well, you can go back to your road team. And then you come to your road team, and they're like, I don't know, where, where have you been? Mm-hmm. So is there, like, I think that's a big hurdle to overcome for USA Cycling. So I guess if you start your own team, I guess it kind of eliminates that. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that we've done differently from that period of time is on the women's side then, I was also really good with making those relationships with the teams. Yeah. So when you sit down, and you say, "Okay, this is this is this is this rider. This is their talent. This is their uh, this is the progression in their career. These are the things they're missing. These are the things the skill sets, power, etc. Um, this is what we can add to it. Uh, this is where they race for us. This is where they race for you. And you start with a, a big rider development plan. Then everybody's on the same page with it. Yeah. Um, at that time on the men's track, I. I don't recall anybody ever doing that with JV or with 
with anybody no, else. No, it was JB just basically getting permission yeah. from USA Cycling. Yeah. And so now, with you know, whether it's the men's endurance or women's endurance, that's, that's really how we go about it. We do the same thing with U23 Road, Junior Road, is you have to sit down with these directors and you have to spend time and yeah. put together a plan that makes sense for an athlete for their development and their progression, yeah. uh, first and foremost, and then you can worry about who they ride for. How was it when you selected the Olympic team? Was that pretty intense? Olympic selection is super intense, yeah. Uh, Have you ever had an Olympic selection without lawyers involved? Um, I guess you've only had one Olympic selection. But. Well, I was part of Athens, I was part of Beijing, so three, and no. <laughs> is it just, I mean, you have to go in knowing it's gonna happen. Yeah, uh, you have to write selection documents if it's a legal document. Yeah. And it's going to be challenged, and it's going to be arbitrated, and and at least you guys got rid of that three K test. Yeah, that thing was not mine. No, because like I was the national points race champion that year, and then they said that I didn't even bother showing mm -hmm. up because I just knew I just knew I wasn't good at that test. Yeah, I like I took like almost personal offense to that test. Like it was created to fuck me. <laughs> Which obviously it wasn't, but you definitely yeah. in that moment you project. You're like, yeah. these sons of bitches. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. You know, it's an, it's an interesting test, and it's a great time standard. It's a great, uh, a great field test. For those who don't know, it's the Olympic selection was you. You got selected to the long team in 2008. In 2008, for the points race spot, you got selected to the long team, and when you go to the track in Carson, and it was a 3K on your points race bike time trial and you had to do the first 500 meters at essentially like 64k an hour 62k an hour settle in and average i think about like 56 57k an hour and it was supposed to simulate uh attacking bridging across to a break and holding it for the next yeah. 3k yeah the problem with that is while it's a good id test exactly it's a great field test it's a test it's a test. It's not bike racing. It's not a yeah. It wasn't three K. Yeah. And the guy who won that test happened to do the exact same thing at the Olympics. He took off very early, yeah. lapped the pack, basically did the test on the track. Yeah. Yeah. Lapped the pack in three laps. And then essentially was the gold medal holder. Yeah. Number one on the leaderboard. And completely shut the bed and yeah. dropped out of the race. Yeah. You know. uh I didn't know this until 2012 and Bobby told me about this. He actually went to the wind tunnel with his Mastart bike. Yeah. And developed a position for that test. Oh yeah. So that he could, and he only trained for that test. Oh yeah. No, like, we, we all knew, we all knew he was gonna murder us. And it was like, wow. Cause when I race with Bobby on the track, like I know he has one incredible turn of speed. He has a super turn of speed. He has about a minute and a half in him that you just have to buckle down and weather the storm. Yeah. But if you weather that storm, you can kick the crap out of them. <laughs> but it's all about surviving that minute and a half of fury. Yeah. You know, I, I say, uh, Bobby went to the Omnium in, in London. He really earned and it this time. He, he did. really and earned it. His, his three years leading up to it, every year he got better. Yep. And then in the final year, 2012, every World Cup he got better. And, and yeah. No, he made big jumps. Yeah, I give him some props for that. He and he rode a nice, he rode a nice Omnium. You know, he wasn't gonna go in there and win a medal. Yeah. Uh, we came to when he came to the last event, Hilo. He had a 
think a legitimate shot at being top ten. Yeah. Which would have been a super result. So I think he did a good job. So what's next, man? What's next for you in USA Cycling? What's the big push? What's the just getting the women's team started? Is that the foremost? Um. Well, we. Have, I mean, we always have a million things going. You have so many disciplines here, and you have so many yeah. teams that are associated with those disciplines and different levels that there's always something going on. Um, for us right now, for me anyways, the thing that motivates me and the thing that I want to accomplish is, is winning as many Olympic medals as they did in, London, or in uh, L.A. I, I that's a big ask. That's a big ask. But it's exciting, and it's what, it's what really motivates me. And, you know, they, they won nine medals. Uh, but if I look at London, we weren't, we, and I really was very optimistic going to London. And at one point, Steve, we came out of meetings, Steve's like, man, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta tone that down. Yeah. And it was a meeting with USOC, and, and I was like, yeah, but I, I believe it. I think we're there. Yeah. And he's like, you have to, what is it? Under promise and over deliver? Yeah. He's yeah. like, you need to under promise and over deliver a little bit more and not be so confident up front. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I think that's a really good philosophy of business, but I think in sport, you have to state your goal and you have to state it publicly and you have to be accountable to it and you have to go for it. And if you don't, then you always have the out. Yeah. And yeah. in sport, you can't give yourself an out. So... So I said from the get-go that going into London, I thought we could win a lot of medals. Um, I mean, Taylor Finney got two fours. Gets two fours. Shelly Olds flats out of the winning break. She's she's going to she's going to get a medal on that break. She's, yeah. So there's three medals you lose right away. Uh, Were you in the team car when she flat? Yeah. Did you just bang your head on the window? Even worse than that is they they say in the race radio, you know her number. She has flat, and it's it's just like quiet shock like what Where? this isn't happening this no, is a the, movie yeah and it's like what and you're you're almost waiting for the race radio to reconfirm and it, it was dead silent in the car and Jax looks at me and he's like what do we do and <laughs> like it was such a shock you forgot how yeah, to change a fly yeah and I guess we give her a wheel yeah we're like go 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 and you know we start blowing through cars and and uh or pulling up to the to the brake and and it's not a time where you can give a sticky bottle. They're not no, going to allow it. No, the TV's there. The cameras are on. Uh, you, you just, at that moment, you just know you're screwed. You're just like, oh, my God, this girl's screwed. We can't do this. It's already, Was she so in it that you couldn't see it on her face, or was she wearing it? Uh, like, could you see the disappointment on her face no, right then? Or was she just, just like, game in? Just game in, panic, like, listen, yeah. let me get back. I got to get back to that group. I belong in that group. Yeah. Uh, and we were, you know, we were still far enough out, but on that course... When you were about 18K out, you went through a park. That's where Cancellara crashed. From that point, back into the finish line was slightly downhill. You can't chase. You can't chase. And there's a lot of turns in the city. Yeah. So we were probably 10K away from that, that park. And we pulled immediately we pulled up to the, the girls. And I was like, listen, if you guys get on the front right now, Germany had already been chasing. You add to this, you can bring it back. But before you do that, you have to ask Jill if she can still sprint because she'd been, she'd been in the break a long time. So sprinting a, a bunch sprint on tired legs is different than sprinting the break. It's still legs. the only chance you have, especially yeah. you have. So by the time the girls got organized, they confirmed Shelly. We we're already entering that park and it's like, it's too late. You can't organize. It's too late. Yeah. We're, it's not gonna happen. Oh, that must have been 
I don't even know how you made eye contact with him after the race. Be, I couldn't do it. No, there's not much to say. I got out of the car and just walked towards her, and, and she just like breaks down bawling, and yeah, you know, that's that's all you can do. Yeah, it's just like you know, sorry. Is it? It's probably like you're so much more hands on with women, where the men have like each one probably have their own director, and everybody's like, is it like? Do you feel you know, so much more hands off? Well, you just don't spend as much time with them day to day. You know, with that team though, Taylor, I've, I've been involved with Taylor for a long time. For, for a long time, Coach TJ all the way through last year. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I had a lot of. You have a lot of. Uh, What's your thoughts on TJ this year at the tour? Do you come in too hot? Do you come in not hot enough? Yeah, you know, clearly he's, he's tired. <clears throat> I think you see the TT and he goes through the first time check and he, he can blow a really good first time check yeah. and then falls apart. And to me that's just fatigue. Fatigue can be anything. It can be the stress of a season. He has a new baby. Uh, yeah. He's you know pretty newly married still. Yeah. Um, yeah and you know, Jesus... Everything off the bike can affect everything on the bike. Yeah. And you don't know what's good, you don't know what's bad. Yeah. You know, you're not sleeping at night because something's bothering you, all of a sudden you lose a ton of form. Yeah. So I mean there's something there, but I don't know. He's, I mean, I'm sure it's 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 hard for him. Yeah. Everybody's watching, everybody's asking. So you're looking like for the like the American white jersey battle between yeah. Kalinsky and TJ. Clancy's maybe not quite where he wants, but yeah. I was I was bummed to see TJ not riding. Yeah. I mean it's gonna be so hard to keep riding. He's got two, yeah he's yeah got two so more too. weeks of like. I think he's putting on a good face right now and, and yeah you know saying he hopes to do something in the Alps and find some form. But somebody told me this great story. I can't remember about Talansky and Noel Dionker. Where Noel Dionker told you like I don't know about this Talansky kid. He's not. He doesn't have it. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Talansky rode for Noel when he was 19 in the springtime, and, and after that, Noel was just like, no, he's not there. And and uh, Talansky's coach then was a guy named Todd Hancock. And Todd would send me power files every single year, all the time. Hey, this is you know this is where Andrews, what do you think? And, and uh, you know, they were really pretty average until he was about 22. Yeah. And then the winter and spring before, as he... Racing age 22, he just made a big jump. He had a big jump in power, and, and I called him and I said, "Hey, I'm looking at your files here. Uh, one of two things: they're either it's either your file or it's not." Yeah, right. Um, but I'll take you to Europe, and we'll give you some races, and and we'll know one way or the other when it's done. Yeah. And I said, if, "If that's cool, then that's what we'll do." And he's like, "Yeah, absolutely, love it." Yeah. And went and lit it up. Did, um, is it weird to, like, you have, like, the mix of, like, old school directors, the new kids, and then you have, like, this overshadowing, like, Armstrong presence that's, like, trying to be, like, as washed away as, not as quickly, but as elegantly as possible, just from everybody's mind. Is that like when that whole thing went down? Was that weird here for a while? Or just like I don't know what to say or like because it's not like Armstrong had. It's not like Armstrong ever came here and was like no, looking around never. talking to you guys, no. you know, like no. But then somehow now you're accountable. Like now somebody's asking you, 
about our tribe yeah. when you maybe never even exchanged an email or text with them. Yeah. So, yeah. You, like, was that just frustrating or? Yeah, you know, it goes with the territory. Everybody wants to draw dots and, and or connect the dots and draw lines and. Sure. And I had nothing to do with him. I don't know him. Sure. Yeah. Like whatever he's not in the office he's not calling and checking on kids <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I don't think he'd probably give a rat's ass one way or the other but you know, it just goes to the territory and you know there, there's not an interview that goes by without somebody asking about it Yeah, and I'm just like listen I don't know I, I know I can speak from my experience and I can speak from what I know is happening in this program now And yeah. it's just funny to say like I, I don't know I've never met him stop asking <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And it seems inconceivable to most people that are like, how, right. do, how do you not know him? You work at UC well. Cycling. Yeah, and I've been to world championships on the road since 2002. Yeah. Every single one. And, and, but he's, he's not came to one. He he's didn't go to the Olympic Games when yeah. I went. And he just, he's the same to me as he is to everybody else. He's a guy in a magazine that you read about him. Yeah. And was, I was, you know, I think everybody has the same opinion of the 2000s. You know, you have Operation Puerto. Yeah, everybody's aware of what's going on you just not then when you heard about it it's like wow to that depth I had no idea sure sure it's like I can't believe that crap it happened like that like it did yeah I don't know I think your team director getting arrested with a backpack full of money seems a little too Mission Impossible <laughs> seems a little too James Bondy for me like when it, when it happened you're like no <laughs> yeah right no. Well, thanks for talking, man. Yeah.